Hello, I'm Anna Bogutskaya and welcome to the second episode of Promising Young Podcast, which is a mini podcast of four episodes that we're doing completely, entirely, totally dedicated to just talking and analyzing the brilliant Promising Young Women. And joining me in this episode and in the previous one and in the future ones is... Jordan Cruciola. So Jordan, for anyone who doesn't know or follow your work as much as I have in the past and the present, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Uh, yeah. First of all, I love being the past, the present, and the future. You are the that past. Feels, <laughs> like I, that feels like something I'm really going to hang on to and make a whole a part of my whole like life outlook. Um, yes, this is Jordan Cruciola, and I am... So delighted once again to, A, really just be hanging out with and talking to Anna because the this this international podcasting experiences with her have just become such a highlight. And, and B, number two, I am, of course, as ever thrilled to be talking again about Promising Young Women as we draw so close, minutes away practically, from the Academy Awards mm-hmm. this weekend. Oh my goodness. And we will be talking, we've got a whole episode planned where we will be going in depth into the journey of Promising Young Women through oh my God, what a journey. the critical sphere, the award sphere. So, you know, but that will come after the Oscars actually happen. And in today's episode, as part of our, I think, ever-expanding transatlantic podcast universe yes. <laughs> that we're creating. Absolutely. We're actually going to be we're going to be taking a little break from from the women because we're going to be talking all about the guys in mm-hmm. Promising Young Women. So, I mean, it seems almost counterintuitive, but I don't know about you, Jordan, but the first time I watched a film, I was very surprised and really like genuinely creeped out by the accuracy the chilling accuracy of the male characters. God, it really like, and and I, this was, I I might've mentioned this on the last one or it could have been you or Clarice, but they're such a feat of this movie is how clearly it translates from the like mind of the millennial white woman, the like accumulated experiences of just, moving around this world while female Mm. and succinctly translating those microaggressions and fucking annoyances and invasions of the way we are constantly experiencing men who feel entitled to our space and time the way like the way this relays that lived experience and puts those characters we know so well we are so familiar with Mm. into such tidally contained little stereotypes is i I, i'm i'm persistently just sort of bowled over by like wow yeah like like one after another and it's just like nailed it nailed it Mm -hmm. nailed it and it 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 feels like that so much of why that opening scene with the charlie xcx song boys and the hip thrusting at the camera that just sets it up so well 
where suddenly you know exactly, like you don't even see where Carrie is yet. Mm. All you see are pelvises. And you're like, oh my God, I know exactly where I am right now. I know where I am. I know the vibe of this fucking bar. Mm-hmm. I I have a sense of every man I see once the camera pulls back and like the kind of nights they're having, the kind of jobs they came from, the kind of boring ass conversations they would try and elicit out of me while they were trying to buy me a drink. Like you can just suddenly feel it all Mm. and all it has to do is just present the most basic dance floor scenario to you without like going into any detail about why this is frankly triggering well and i should say at this point because you've set it up pretty much beautifully in the same way as the film has with this kind of description of the dance floor. And oh. I instantly think of that Flight of the Concords Too Many Dicks on the Dance Floor song. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that's so it. Yeah. But, you know, for anyone who's listening and you have not for some reason yet seen Promising Young Woman... This whole episode and all the subsequent episodes will contain spoilers. So we are going to be talking on the assumption that you have seen the film and know what happens. And if you haven't, you're, of course, welcome to listen. That is your choice. If you need more enticing to go and and convince yourself to go watch it. But be warned that everything that follows from now on is going to be spoilerific. So we do start with a whole bunch of crotches very awkwardly. Dancing. Oh, and a one- travesty. <laughs> but incredibly, incredibly astute as well, because it just takes a couple of images for us to know exactly where, when, mm. and what to expect from these guys. <laughs> yeah, like you can kind of like you can kind of like close your eyes and see how your whole evening played out like this when mm. you were in this situation last, and you're like, oh yeah, I can just like draw that arc right there. And one of the things that I find really interesting about that opening scene is that we meet the guys and sort of listen in on their conversation before we even see Cassie. So yes. we very much see her first from their point of view. Mm-hmm. What do you make of the way that they like talk about her, the way that they see her, the way that they like try to pounce on her without presenting as such? I mean, it it really. I have such a, a I have such a specific memory mm. that this links to. I I watched this scene, and you know, you have Adam Brody, your your nice guy, mm. and then you have his two you know coworker friends that he's with that are talking more about Carrie, um, as 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 that piece of meat, as as a piece as a, as some game to be hunted. And there was a moment once in college. I think it was my sophomore year. I was out uh, with a friend of mine. My one of my very best friends, and he knew a bunch of guys on the lacrosse team at University of Oregon. And there's this one particularly obnoxious guy named Todd. I won't give his last name, but his name was Todd. And um, we were standing around in the circle of guys. It was me, Justin, and them. And we were just sort of, you know, we were at one of those sort of intersections where all college kids converge on a Saturday night. Like, mm-hmm. everybody, it's in, it's in one of those, like, to and fro sweeps where everybody's leaving one, leading one bar and on their way to the other kind of thing. Yeah, so it's just yeah. a, a lot of, like, teeming, teeming mass of Friday, Saturday night around you. And we're talking, and at one point, Todd just, like observes he's like six five and he just like looks up and he just like observes the goings on he just goes man there's so many drunk bitches out tonight and i looked at todd and i just went fucking really todd 
And he's like, oh, sorry. That's how Todd talks when I, some woman who he doesn't know, has no friendly relation with, has no personal connection where he might be able to reasonably assume that, like, oh, Todd's just like that, but he doesn't mean any harm. Like, Mm. there was nobody, I was not a person there who knows Todd such that I would, like, apologize for him, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, oh, you, you know I don't mean it. Like, no. He didn't even care I was there. I might as well have not been standing there. And then when I was, like, asshole, he, oh, sorry. Dude, no, you're not. And, like, that's who you are. And you're standing around with your boys. And, like, how many times, how many iterations of, what is the progression from for you on an average Saturday night? There are so many drunk bitches out here tonight. And I thought of that immediately. And Justin was like, dude, like he, he like he he told him like that that was fucked up. But like none of his other buddies did. Hmm. So it was like, no, this is like you you can't you can't tell me that this is being boiled down for the purposes of this narrative to like show you something um only based in like stereotype or like the least charitable assumptions. Fucking no. Hmm. That's Todd. And there's so many Todds. And for every one Todd, there are five guys who don't give a shit about what Todd just said. And we'll let him do it. So I immediately felt myself standing in that circle again being like, yep, I know them. And was just so angry immediately. What's interesting about that scene and and that experience that you're describing is that it's the one who actually goes after Cassie mm-hmm. is not one of the Todds. Let's mm-hmm. call let's call him that. You know, that, yeah. that oh, seems like a fair stereotypical Todds. Name. Yes, let's do yeah. it. Yeah. So like there's a bunch of Todds and they're all basically doing that. Basically mm-hmm. ogling her and going like, oh look at that drunk bitch. Yeah. Like yeah. she's asking for it. Yeah. And then there's the there's the nice guy. There's the Adam Brody. He's mm-hmm. like, guys, no. No, that's not right. <laughs> yeah. It's just no, no. I'm gonna, I'm gonna help her. Yeah, I'm gonna help her. Okay. Mm-hmm. What struck me on second viewing is that there's a sort of winky nod from them, mm-hmm. where, and I'm thinking now, who was he performing the nice guy for? Yeah, like they, like there's an implicit understanding I think between them where it's like, oh yeah, we know what you're doing. Right. Right. But I don't like why, why it's probably not the first time. Definitely not the first time. I mean, you know, right. I'm creating like a whole backstory for this five minute character played <laughs> yeah. by Adam Brody. But, but that's the point is we know yeah. these characters so well. So how do you think the because I think the scene is just so interesting. How do you think the film plays with this idea of the nice guy? Well, and I think I think this is I have a very specific, you know, story when I think of this guy, too, where. Um, a very dear friend of mine uh, dated this guy off and on a few times, and he was very much a nice guy. He's mm. a nice guy, and um, they had it. They had a bit of an acrimonious ending because he liked her so much more than she liked him, and um, you know, eventually they they imploded. Well, cut to a couple months later, uh, my friend is uncharacteristically drunk, and I was um, I, I had told her like. Just call me end of the night and I'll come pick you up. Like, mm-hmm. don't worry about it. Like, whatever I'm doing, just call me and come. I'll come get you, okay? 
And so I get a call instead from another friend of ours who's with this very close friend of mine. And she's like, you need to come get her because um, her ex is here. That guy's here. And he's he's trying to take her home. Mm. He was sober. And he was there and he sees her and she's blacked out, basically. And he's going to, oh, I'll just I'll just take her to my house. Like, she's, she's, you know, her night's done. Mm. I'll take her to my house. I'll look after her. Like, and by the, I was like, I got off the phone with that friend. I was like, I'm coming right now. Do not let her leave. Mm -hmm. And I got there and she's already gone. And so the next morning instead, she calls me and she's like, can you come pick me up at this guy's house? I was like, yeah, for sure. And I pick her up and she's, she's fine. She's like, she's, she's, she's like, okay. She's, but we, we get to the house. We get back because I, I lived with her and um, we parked the car and we're going inside and she's like. I don't remember anything, but I feel like I had sex last night. And mm. I, he never talked to her again. They never spoke again. Mm. He just had his, he had his shot. He, this girl who, you know, didn't, didn't love, wasn't obsessed with him the way she, the way he was obsessed with her. And then he saw her obliterated and he got his one last shot to fuck her. Mm. And he did when she was too drunk to stop it and she wasn't like she wasn't having a crisis over this i just like we were both just like wow okay wow what a guy what a guy mm. and so to like that adam brody kid, like that was so i was like oh i know i definitely know you i i have not i've not had that experience men i i'm i have not had sex in my life that's not a part of my life really to this point and so there is a sort of removal for me from mm. these situations where I, these men exist to me through observation and stories from my friends my friends to basically a one my female friends mm -hmm. and my queer male male friends um and so to see that i was like there you are like I, I don't even have to have gone through this with you to know you and that felt the fact that I could connect so hard to this character and this experience, despite having not firsthand gone through it, but seeing mm. exactly the playbook unfold the way I know that it has, the way I've like been just one step removed from from ex like seeing it go down was like, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. And I can just imagine, like, no, 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 it's okay. It's okay. No, no, it's okay. You're safe. You're safe. Mm. Oh, my God. The amount of – there's something I at least respect about um, men who are outwardly awful because <laughs> at least you see that person coming. Mm. Like, you can make your choice about a person, you know, at least Todd will stand in front of me and scream drunk bitches so I can be like, all right, cross Todd off the list. Mm. Um, but otherwise, those sneaky ones – those are the ones who tell themselves that they did the right thing and that she wanted it. And that they there's not even a it's not even about like there's something about when it's more brutally focused on power that I can at least be like, all right, I can wrap my brain around that. But the yeah. insidiousness of being able to persistently tell yourself that you're the person who did something right, mm -hmm. that you were the you were the hero for the night, you were the white knight, mm -hmm. um, that just triggers a kind of anger in me. I, I feel like I'm going to detonate like a bomb. Mm -hmm. And I think that you're so 
correct in the in the insidiousness of it and it's almost like a secret language because you can you're so right read that first scene and i'm kind of focusing on that scene because it's been used a lot in the Mm -hmm, conversation mm -hmm. around the film it was used a lot in the marketing it's a very striking opening to a film really because it taps into so many different uh visual languages and also expectations yes the expectation like what this scene plays Mm -hmm. into like if what the trailer sort of lures you in with the first 10 minutes of this movie should really reorganize what you thought was about to happen. Yes. And it really sets the table for what the movie is versus what it was like kind of, I won't say bait and switching, but just like breadcrumbing you in mm. to then sort of slap you in the face. I need to lay down. Oh, yeah, of course. Right this way. Don't go to sleep. What? Gosh, you're so pretty. Wait. <laughs> What are you? It's okay. You're safe. Hey, it's okay. You're safe. What are you doing? Oh, God, your body. What are you doing? What are you doing? Wait. The more I think about it, and I can see it very clearly in my head. And uh, well, Emerald Fennell has talked a lot about this in interviews is the fact that if you put different music on it mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and you sort mm-hmm. of change the tone yeah. of that scene, it's the beginning of a rom com. Yeah. Oh, completely. Like, it is beat by beat. If Cassie does not, you know, sober up. And mm-hmm. it's not part of her um, her kind of whole process and what she does when she goes out to these bars in disguise. Yeah. That's the begin- That's the start of a rom-com. Mm-hmm. It would be absolutely no different. It would probably start Adam Brody as well. Mm-hmm. Like, that yes, is a sort it of could, and it would be so fucking charming. Yeah. It would be, he would be so desirable because he's so good at that. And I say that as somebody who hates Seth Cohen. <laughs> I hate Seth Cohen. Put Seth Cohen, put Seth Cohen in a box and don't ever let him out. Seth mm. Cohen conditioned a generation of women to think that like neuroticism and self-deprecation and negging is sexy. It is not. Mm. And so, but like seeing the internet's boyfriend, Adam Brody, in this capacity, I mean, the casting is just Chef's I mean, kisses over and over and over again. And you know, we touched on this very briefly in the in the last episode, but the casting is extremely deliberate in this. Oh, like yeah. all of the guys, Christopher Mansplas, Sam Richardson, Adam mm-hmm. Brody, Bo Burnham, we will talk a lot more about him. Mm-hmm. But the casting is all the guys that are friendly, likable, 
very popular internet very boyfriends internet boyfriends but also like you know have made their careers through yeah. rom-coms and through playing kind of very very sweet natured nice yep. dudes right they are mm-hmm. not you know if you cast someone like I'm going way back for some reason to the 70s but like if you cast like 70s Harvey Keitel in this role why am I going to the 70s I can't think of a single like two, <laughs> 2000s creepy dude anyway if you cast like 70s Harvey Keitel in this role you'd be like oh he's the villain he's the villain yeah yeah totally there's one of those absolutely- human spoiler people yeah yeah exactly but with these guys you're like oh i feel i feel soft and cuddly like that's yeah. fine they would like Noah would centineo might as well be here Noah centineo yes. might as well be in this movie <gasps> Noah centineo would be such great casting for this as well like- but yeah so what do you think about like our how the casting plays into our own audience expectations of what we expect from these guys in particular I absolutely love metacasting. It's not something that, like, you should, you know, try to shoehorn in all the time. But, like, when you have the chance, I, I will eternally go back to Megan Fox and Jennifer's body. Yes. Um, Allison Williams in Get Out and then subsequently Allison Williams in The Perfection, who was very aware mm. of that metacasting and wanted to embrace the baggage of her persona to... um you know, undermine, subvert audience expectations and sort of manipulate them. Like, that was a very conscious decision from her in those back-to-back films that she did. I love that. Like, what what a treat that you get to do that. And, you know, for, again, so cleanly, this movie is so cleanly realized from Emerald that it's like, I wish I I wish I could see the sheet of like potential castings for these roles. Like who were the internet boyfriends that didn't that didn't get the call? Who were the who were the ones who were like, you know, it could be who were the sort of backups? Well, if it's not this guy, it could be this guy, you know? Well, if it's not Piz, it could be it could be this guy. Like mm. there cuz there is a, such a perfect category of these kinds of actors mm-hmm. that you could draw from. And I just I really appreciate the willingness of these actors to be like, oh, I get what I'm doing here. Mm-hmm. Like, Adam Brody knows what he's doing in that role. Mm-hmm. Christopher Mintz-Plotz knows what he's doing in that role. Bo Burnham has to know what he's doing in that role. Of, co- of course they do. They're smart dudes. but Of course, of I, course. I do wonder, like, do you think that uh, we've described them as sort of nice screen, like the screen's nice guys, the internet yeah. boyfriends. But, like, do you think there is more malleability especially from audiences points of view Mm -hmm. of these guys appearing in these villainous or predatory roles because like likability affects male performers and female performance in different ways and I find that sometimes it's much more and perhaps I'm just you know making assumptions here but I, I, I personally find that people are much more willing to accept sort of range from male performers than they are yeah. from women. Like Megan Fox is a great example. Like if you are the sex bot, if you're the bombshell, that's mm-hmm. that's your persona. You cannot suddenly play, you know, a, a dramatic role. You kind of play a, a serial killer. You cannot do that. Like there, there is there isn't that breadth of allowing a performer to have range. They have to very knowingly kind of fit into a persona that can be sold mm-hmm. and then if they deviate from it it has to be with purpose as well yes yes no i completely i completely agree and i think what what men are afforded is the like you know the, the sort of kudos for self-awareness in that way it's like mm-hmm. oh look at how 
good they are. Like they they know they're in on the joke. Like I, you know, what a what a great break from form to see them doing something like this. Whereas mm-hmm. with women, you have the angel whore binary. Mm-hmm. Where look look at Carrie for yeah. example. Yeah. Like we you know we talked so much about the the presence and persona of Carrie Mulligan in the first episode, and then like you have you know that semi infamous variety review where you know she she spoke out um about it in in the New York Times profile that Kyle uh Buchanan did of her where she was like you know what did she say she was like i looked up the i looked up reviews cuz i'm a weak person <laughs> it's like <laughs> well don't be so hard on yourself girlfriend but um and she looked up the review she saw she saw the variety review that did it wasn't the most it wasn't the most egregious phrasing but it was so reductive Mm. It w- the 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 writer defended saying that she wasn't so believable in a physical role like this because she didn't because basically because she didn't fit the bombshell persona saying that Margot Robbie would have been a much more intuitive choice to play someone like Cassie essentially somebody who would be believable as a honeypot mm. be- somebody who would be believable as being so alluring that they could trap men from across the room implying that Carrie was not so alluring for that to be a, a believable scenario. And, you know, he defended that as saying, like, I'm a, you know, I'm an older gay man. I never objectify women and I would never do that. And I was talking about her physical performance. It's like, well, you weren't actually talking about her physical performance. You were just talking about how she looks. And sorry, bro, like internalized misogyny means that, yeah, no, everybody can be sexist. Women can be sexist against other women. Like, that's not that's not a way out Mm. from this and then so you look at someone like carrie mulligan who steps away from not that she's only ever done period pieces but steps away from the very sort of common groove that we know her in which is these period pieces these costume dramas and does this very contemporary very acerbic very biting very modern film and then you have a response to that being like yeah but she's not really believable like that you know it's like isn't she though? Like she's an actress. She's a great actress. She's an Academy Award nominated actress. Like, what do you mean? What are you? What is the? Why can she not have the grace mm-hmm. to break from type? But these men playing the inverse of what we we know them as, and and in in inverse mm-hmm. of the ways in which they are beloved. Why does she not get that grace or that that kudos for playing against expectation in that way? There is something you mentioned that I kind of and I'm I'm changing or kind of evolving my thoughts about this film because this idea of the honeypot and whether she's honeypotting them mm-hmm. I'm genuinely kind of I don't think she's honeypotting them anymore oh, you know oh okay I you would know love what? to tell me more I think again this comes from something from an from an interview you did with Emerald where and through watching the film several times and hearing about it and listening to to you speak about it and reading a lot about it the more I think of scenes is that she's not hotting them because she's not targeting a specific person. Okay, okay, she's gotcha. not She's not targeting a specific dude. She gotcha. puts herself in those situations, mm-hmm. but they're the ones who find her mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. pursue her, which I think, you know, it might be, you know, this is totally, this is just my reading. I think that she's making herself, she's fitting into these roles of mm-hmm. the, the vulnerable drunk woman and she also dresses up. We talked a little bit about kind of her costuming of herself, of these mm-hmm. alternative personas and, and putting herself in those situations to attract any guy. Mm-hmm. And there is a there is a point in the movie where she kind of talks about it a little bit, where she says, you know, it's their 
choice. Like they could just do nothing. Mm-hmm. They could leave her alone. She yeah, could yeah, home. Yeah. Al- she could go home alone and call it a night and be fine. Yeah. But someone always comes over. But mm-hmm. she never really goes out and targets like a specific guy. She's not looking mm-hmm. for Adam Brody. But right. Adam Brody is the one who spots her and mm-hmm. goes for it because he knows the implications of it. And he knows his own, um, he understands the imbalance of power and that it's kind of going in his direction. And he's taking mm-hmm. advantage of that. No, I, okay, yeah, I completely, that, that makes sense to me. I, I hear that, yes. Whereas at the beginning, I was thinking, like, is she, is she, she is tricking them. She's tricking them on purpose. And she is, to a degree. And I find mm-hmm. that element to be one of the most interesting ones. Like, that moment when they first realize mm-hmm. that the imbalance of power is not in their favor. Right, right. And how it plays out with all the different nice guys. So we see, I think, about three different instances like in detail mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so what do you make of the of their reactions to on to realizing that she's sober and totally in control because i feel like those moments are like because we see it that we get to see it sort of the most fully realized with christopher mince plots where oh my god just fucking talking about david foster wallace wow like <laughs> what a what an evocative exchange that is it, just yeah. the way carrie's voice suddenly turns to Neil, like mm-hmm. oh my god like i feel my own blood run cold in like the most satisfying way possible i just thought that you were drunk yeah really drunk fuck yeah well i'm not but that's good isn't it i think you should leave oh now you want me to leave no i just i'm really high like i'm really fucking high right now i don't know what i'm doing I think you should go. But a second ago, you were determined for me to stay. You were pretty insistent, actually. I'm a nice guy. Are you? I thought we had a connection, I guess. A connection? Okay. What do I do for a living? Sorry, maybe that one's too hard. How old am I? How long have I lived in the city? What are my hobbies? my name and it's really i feel like in that moment what you're watching is these suddenly it becomes entirely in the way that it has been the entire night it's all about them like there's such a complete centering of themselves in the realization of what they have done Mm -hmm. whether or not whether or not they realize what they are when they realize just in that one at least isolated incident what they've done, I feel like, you know, they're not, there's no empathy response. Mm-hmm. There's no, you know, it's not, you know, it, it wouldn't be in this movie. That's not what it's for. But like the idea of her doing something like that and and, a, and one of the guys engaging with her on this level of like, fuck. Yes. You're, you're right. You're right. Oh my god! Like mm-hmm. that. The, the idea that any of them would recognize that as like a wake up call moment where they could actually engage with what was happening and who they were and take responsibility and instead of just backpedaling, instead of just continuing to make excuses, instead of just acknowledging the unavoidable truth of the moment. And who they are, 
every moment is about still maintaining, every second of that reaction is about still maintaining the facade, even in the face of insurmountable evidence mm. with somebody telling them, with a woman telling them right there, like, you know, what do I do? What's my name? As she's mm. gloriously continuing to eat chips. And... <laughs> <laughs> like when she and thank God when she presses Christopher Mintz Plus up against that wall the mm-hmm. way she does, it's just it feels so disappointingly sincere, even if it is like a, a blown out sort of semi you know unrealistic situation. It feels so disappointingly real that she would she basically you know by her her notebook tally Mm -hmm. i would imagine i feel like the implication is she's never had a moment in all of those hash marks she makes in her journal uh where one of them was like can i engage with you on this and have a conversation with you like you don't have to say yes but can we talk like Mm -hmm. i don't think that's literally ever happened to her i don't think anybody has ever i don't think anybody any of those men have ever seized upon Mm. the teachable moment well, this is this was leading into what I really wanted to talk about in this episode. And it's even from that first scene that we've discussed in detail, mm-hmm. there's such a wonderful play with the audience because after we see her wake up fully, mm-hmm. wake up is not, after we see her kind of reveal herself yes. to Adam Brody's character, Neil, right? Uh, Neil is Christopher Mintz Plus. Oh, sorry. To After we see her reveal herself to Adam Brody's character, yeah. there is that shot of something red and kind of sort of sludgy falling on her, yeah. on her skirt. And you're like, mm-hmm. my instant thought was like, oh, she fucking killed it. Yeah, like she's covered in blood. She's yeah, covered in yeah, blood. Yeah, and she course. doesn't even give a shit that she's walking around the street covered in yeah. evidence. Which which is, you know, the familiar image that we're very, very used to mm-hmm, in, mm-hmm. in revenge films. And and no, it's a it's a bagel or it's a burger or something like that. So I was wondering, kind of, yeah, I what? think it's a I think it's like a jelly donut. Yes, that's a or jelly it's like donut. a hot dog. It's one of the two things. <laughs> like it's some it's either dripping like red jam or ketchup down her. Either way, she's eating something. She's always eating something in this film. I yes. love it. And but my thing is, what do you think is the punishment? Like, what is the objective of these of these encounters? Okay, so I think with that, um, you know, what we what we do know, based on the way Cassie based on the way Cassie encounters, interacts with um the men that we do see her have fully fleshed out experiences with, in the form of Alfred Molina as the lawyer mm-hmm. and even Al. Like when like when she goes to see Alfred Molina, she has a she has a full hired gun outside mm-hmm. <laughs> whose job is going to be to either come in and seriously intimidate Alfred Molina when she leaves or beat the shit out of him. And to this point, she has not actually incorporated violence into her playbook as far as we know. Mm-hmm. Like, that is an escalation, I would imagine, because it is connected to Nina and it's not just some exercise she's going through with randoms out at clubs. Um, she breaks that plan. When Alfred Molina collapses onto her, apologizes, takes responsibility for what he did, and gives this, like, you know, mea culpa, like, in front of her, where she's really, she's not expecting it. She's so bowled over by him taking responsibility for his part Mm -hmm. in what happened to Nina, that it seems to, it seems to underscore that she's never had a moment like this where someone actually did the thing she hoped they would do. Mm-hmm. And has at this point seemingly given up hope that they would. And then even with Al, I, I think she's probably going to cut him up regardless because it's Nina. And this is sort of, you know, sort of the grand design. 
But even when she's got him handcuffed and she is grilling him on that bed, what she keeps doing over and over is trying to get him to take responsibility. Mm -hmm. It's just say it. Say what you did. Say what you are responsible for. Say this was your, say that you are to blame. And all that, and she gets pushed to the edge of her, to the, to the end of her rope. The only time she breaks and yells is when he continually keeps insisting, like, we were kids. We were so, I was so young. And she says, wrong. And she shouts at him. And it's, it's in his repeated refusal to own up that she loses her patience. Hmm. And like she says, like, you know, I haven't, nobody, you know, nobody says her name and, and I want to have, you should have your, her name written all over you since you smothered her out of existence. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like based on what we can know from the encounters we do see elucidated for us between the key characters in this movie, if we project that on to the sort of bench players and the background characters and the yeah. like backstory characters that are the hash marks in the book... Based on that, I truly think that her goal is really just to see if any one of them will be like, you're so right. Fuck. And until she gets any measure of that peace of mind, mm. she's just going to keep trying. So I really think that is, you know, critique however you would like that as an objective, sure. But I really think that's what she wants. I don't think she's actually out there trying to like collect ears for a necklace hmm. i think it really is just do any will any of you say what you did will any of you do it or is this truly all so fucked as i think it is and i really think that's the goal i think that's the goal i want to talk a little bit about alfred molina's lawyer character mm -hmm. and because that's that's the closest thing that she gets to someone admitting yeah to any you know, culpability to acknowledging how fucked up the system is, the system that's built to protect men's reputations above mm -hmm. women's lives mm -hmm. and to bury these stories, sometimes for the sake of profit. Mm -hmm. How does she, how do you think she handles that? Because there is something about Cassie that is mirroring uh, the, it's mirroring the behavior of an addict. It's almost yeah. like she becomes, through trying to exercise this anger mm -hmm. and remember or or do justice to the memory of Nina, mm -hmm. she becomes addicted to just seeing how awful all of these guys are. Yeah. Like yeah. this idea of just like, just one, just one, just let me find one. Yeah. But I almost think, and, and perhaps this is why I like her so much as a character, is that I don't think she would actually stop even if she found that guy. Because you almost become addicted. I think she's almost addicted to this, to getting angry, to feeling this sense of control, to humiliate, well, not humiliating, humiliating them is not the right word, mm -hmm. to holding up a mirror to them. Yeah. Well, and I think, I, I think what's interesting about that, because doesn't, um she ends up with fedora guy right like is that yes. after alfred molina when 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 bo burnham when ryan catches her uh i think that's before because okay. i think alfred molina is so alfred molina is tied into al that's when it becomes a right, nina's right. specific yeah you're revenge right. well i think that's that's what ryan exists as like as much as i really think that like 
it's I love the rom-com within this movie like you know in spite mm. of myself I'm like rooting for Cassie and Ryan <laughs> even if like Cassie is an idea to Ryan mm. in a lot of ways more than she is a real person and similarly Ryan is an idea to Cassie more than he is a real person he's possibility mm-hmm. he's an alternative he's it, he's another way and it does abate her craving it does abate her obsession and fixation with this routine she has formed Mm. when she gets involved with him and she tells him like when when she he catches her with fedora guy and (laughs) you know they have that you know very painful reckon stilted reconciliation at his apartment and she's like it's i can't explain it but i can just promise you it's not gonna happen again Mm -hmm. and in that moment she means it it's not gonna happen again Mm -hmm. actually until it becomes about Nina specifically. Yes. And I, I do believe, I do believe that she actually wouldn't have done it again because she sort of, she found the exception. She is continually looking for someone to be the exception. And I don't think she expected it to be a romantic partner, but she did find one. Mm-hmm. But he didn't know her because he didn't, he didn't recognize the entire story of her. And she clearly didn't know him until the moment when he reveals his true nature to her. So they were really like, they were on a ho- they were on a foundation of sand. Mm-hmm. And I think that's like, you know, when having grown up with addicts, um, that promise of possibility is so desirable, but you're fighting sort of your nature to hold on to it. Mm-hmm. And that's such the battle of choosing every single day to to grab on to possibility. When you know the reality of what you want and the reality of what pulls you toward a, you know, either an escape or a darker solution. And I think that, I I think that that's ultimately why, like, Ryan is such a great villain, is such a perfect Mm -hmm. villain to me in this movie, because he's the idea of something good. And when he has the, he has the opportunity to prove that he's real, he completely fucking destroys her. And he, he shows that. You know, for the purposes of this movie and the purposes of her story, there isn't an exception. Because hmm. even though Alfred Molina came clean and he did all that, he'd still ruined probably dozens of lives of women like Nina, who he yeah. says, like, we were paid to go through their social media. They're trash. Mm-hmm. Like, he doesn't, he doesn't, he's not absolved of this. He's kind of like, you know, he's sort of like a Catholic permanently punishing themselves to the end of time and like tightening the, you know, the salise and flogging himself Mm -hmm. until his demise, because that's his penance for what he's done. This feels like a good moment to talk about Ryan and that, that little rom-com within the revenge film that I think definitely put off some people who are perhaps more of the genre persuasion who are like, what the fuck is this? Why is, why is this (laughs) like in 25 minutes of people falling in love and Mm -hmm. hanging out and doing cringy white people stuff in pharmacies? Yes. Stars are blind. Take me home. I think it's a great dude. I enjoy the, I enjoy the soundtrack to this film a lot. I've been listening to it a lot this past week. I have to say my favorite single reaction to Promising Young Woman is the writer Balu Babalola. Oh. With Stan. <laughs> and when she she had started it last week available in the UK mm-hmm. and the first the first tweet was just something like oh no. And the second <laughs> one is I didn't do any research. I thought it would be a nice white woman movie. <laughs> The tweet after that, I thought it would be like Lady Bird. <laughs> Just the she Baloo is also um the one who described 
the movie Booksmart in terms that I consider now like a sort of benchmark of aspiration for me. She described Booksmart as well-meaning white excellence. <laughs> and I think that that like if you know if she's grouping this in with Ladybird, I feel like this was in her mind. This was like maybe going to be some of that well-meaning white excellence. Mm. And this is this is a movie that does not mean well. <laughs> But it does have it does have a a little rom com at the center, it which does. I, I don't know if Balu. I mean, I follow her, and I was totally stunned. I hope it worked for her as well. <laughs> <laughs> as a, she is basically a rom com scholar, yes, so I too would love to hear her speak specifically on this. But yes, tell me about your thoughts about this, the romance and the the possibility of redemption that Ryan represents. I, because like I want Cassie to be happy. I want yeah. Cassie to feel and be happy. And so like that he represents that that option for her. Like it makes me happy that she's happy in those times. But like I, a friend of mine, um, tweeted after she watched it. Uh, I think it said like, "Wow, like this." I forget the exact phrasing how she set it up. That she was like, "Damn, like promising young woman." really going to do a number on uh, all those guys whose entire toolbox is gentle coercion. And I was like, oh, fuck. Like, it's, and like, that is so true. Like, it's so, it's so, it is so much of it. Like, when I really, you know, when I'm not swept away in the fucking montage of it and the Paris Hilton of it, it is so much Seth Cohen. And I always hated Seth Cohen. God, I could, I, Ryan for life. I love Ryan. In the OC, Seth was always so mealy-mouthed and weak, and he didn't deserve Summer. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, she deigned to lower her standards enough to be with this person who was constantly centering himself in everything and who made his entire love for her about himself. And it, like, making him feel like the person he wanted to be because he got, like, hot summer. And, oh, God, he's so gross. And and <laughs> Seth exists so much in this tradition of something that I've been thinking so much about lately, which is that, like, millennial soft boy nerd mm. who, like, so, who is so much, like, you know, it's born of the John Hughes universe, that entitled best friend who really wants to fuck the girl he's best friends with, but instead he's going to like wait in the wings the entire time and hope she chooses him and grow steadily resentful when she doesn't. Cause she actually wants the hot jock who she's going to end up with. Yeah. It's the, it's, it's pretty in pink. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And from the pretty in pink, from, from the pretty in pink John Hughes tradition, we move into the weed inverse. Mm. We move into Buffy and Xander Harris. Oh, Xander is a true and villain. Xander Harris. And I, I didn't watch Buffy in real time. Me either. I were obsessed with it. But I, I I didn't watch it. And so I I, I watched it in my 20s, my late 20s. Mm -hmm. And it's, it was actually really hard for me to enjoy because I hate Xander so much. And I think he undermines so much of what the show, even in its like 90s context, was Same. doing well for like, you know, you know, pop feminism and, you know, knowing what you know, know about uh, like accusations against Joss Whedon coming mm -hmm. in many forms. Xander Harris is an extension of that John Hughes character, but it's this grosser, even mm -hmm. more entitled, weaponized kind of nerd mm -hmm. who, as my friend Sam, who I do the odds pod with, says, like, you know, that's the character, this, like, the, the beta nerd. They're the one who knows what's really going on. They don't, like, have any skills they can contribute to, like, the group. But even in Buffy, Xander is framed as being the heart of the Scoobies. Ugh. Why? Absolutely Why? fucking not. There's a, there's a scene later on where he's like angry that Dawn, um, Michelle Trachtenberg's mm. character, is into Spike because he's like, well, but she, I thought she was into me. I thought she loved me. It's like, 
She's 14 and you're in college, Xander. What the fuck are you talking about? But it was normal. It also, Manaku did not deserve Anya at all. The way, oh, the, the way that these characters, like the Xanders, like the John Hughes best friends, like the Ryans, have been so normalized as this like desirable form of lovable dork, despite the actual insidiousness of their intentions and their resentment at not getting what they're entitled to, mm-hmm. which is like the body and the time of the girl in front of them who they're pining after. This is so deeply woven into our minds as an age group, as this archetype that should be somebody we 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 realize one day is actually who was the good guy all along, when that's just their fucking propaganda. And Ryan is an extension of that. He's like the best possible extension of that. Mm. But then in the moment of truth, he reveals that actually, no, he's not not Xander Harris. And what this movie does so well is the way that it, it actually gives really linear payoffs for the characters that it sets up. Mm-hmm. Because, like, in the end, the, the resolution of every male character in this movie, basically, they end exactly as they began. And when I say begin, I mean mm-hmm. in the sense of, like, their origin stories back in college. The way yeah. Ryan resolves was exactly the guy he was in college. He's just a bystander. He didn't do anything. Mm. And then when the cops show up and ask him questions, oh, gosh, I don't know anything. I don't know anything. Mm. He abdicates. And then when when Al is faced with, you know, is faced with accountability, is faced with a reckoning, he does the same thing that he did in college. He, he attacks a woman, but mm. it wasn't his fault because she made him do it or she was asking for it. He does the same thing. His 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 emotions, his libido, his whatever overwhelm him, and he acts in a moment of impulse. And in college, he raped a woman. And in as an adult, like on the eve of his wedding, practically he kills a woman. Every man in this ends up being every one of those like nice guys ends up being exactly the person that they were telegraphed to be at their at their origin point. And so it's a very tidy conclusion for them. And indeed. Kind of the only one, the only one that has like an arc of of evolution is Alfred Molina's character, who's mm-hmm. an outright piece of shit. Like he's the one combing your social media. He's the one going through your trash. He he's the knows one profiting. he's not a nice guy. He knows he's a fucking hitter for a law firm. And he knows that they get bonuses for submarining assault victims. He knows that. He's not pretending to be anything else. It's just when the when the day comes where the door knock happens and he's faced with his past and he's been not sleeping not you know whatever he's depressed not eating all that stuff he was the one who was an outright owning it piece of shit all along Mm -hmm. and he's the only one that gets any something anything resembling a redemption or the nice guys they're all they all end up being as my friend sam said exactly because that's who they are because if it happens once it'll happen again i mean (laughs) how to write how to follow that up i think I distrusted Ryan from the very beginning. You should. Weirdly. Good for you. <laughs> no. Have you dated Ryan? Is that why? <laughs> have you dated I have, Ryan? I have, I have dated Ryan. So I have indeed. <laughs> In fact, I'm just... I When you mentioned Buffy, I remember that I also saw it in my... I think only about a few years ago. I did not grow up with Buffy in the way that mm-hmm. a lot of people did. Yeah. Um, and I remember my boyfriend at that time, only a few years ago, was a massive Buffy nerd. Mm-hmm. And he 
did not i hated xander from the from the get-go i absolutely fucking hated him and i remember talking to him about how disgusting xander was as a character and what a misogynistic character he was and he didn't oh, he, he, he was like wait no but you know i'm xander <laughs> which i should have oh, known. <laughs> oh no, no 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 oh god oh, i should have known <laughs> i should have oh, known run run like anybody who's like i love ted mosby or like i'm no. xander is like oh my god lose, Jordan. lose my number lose my number and my forget my face fucking leave i'm getting a new passport i'm running also not to get super personal but he did also really like ted mosby so i no, should Anna. have known <laughs> oh my god i mean he gave you all the clues mr police officer listen they were yeah, right I'm not there proud. i am not proud jordan i'm not gonna lie I, it, but <laughs> it really like it continues to be true when someone tells you who they are believe them hmm. believe them but i think what's what's most interesting about ryan as the nice guy is that mm -hmm. he is both kind of falling into that very kind of clear rom-com tradition of kind of totally. sexy sexy stalking right it's like oh sexy stalking sexy like, stalking I'm, I'm sort of gonna you know push a little bit but i'm gonna yep. say you that i'm pushing a little bit I, I, won't, I won't push too hard but also i'm gonna keep pushing just keep showing up and just yeah. keep demonstrating my interest until you you i will gently coerce you into giving me a chance i'm fully gonna come to your place of business and look yes. at you expectantly yes and it'll be funny and it'll be cute and it'll be smart and maybe something will happen maybe something will not you know let's see but it is it is kind of pushing through the initial couple of no's that cassie gives him but what really terrified me about ryan is again that moment of self-preservation especially when dealing with the police when the police come to him and they ask about Cassie. He literally denies her existence. He's like, yes. "Oh yeah, I don't know, I don't know her. Who? I've never met her." Yeah, that it's not just the self-preservation because you know we can, to a degree, all connect to the you know wanting to look after your own back and cover yourself, sure. especially when the police come knocking. But yeah. there is something about the erasure of these women. That oh. feeds into that and feeds he, into their idea of themselves as the nice guy. Even absolutely, after, like there's nothing wrong with having an argument, falling out, breaking up with your girlfriend. Like that's no. fine. It's sad, but it happens. It happens. That's okay. It's fine. It happens to all of us. But like the fact that he denies what they had, mm -hmm. and seems so much more concerned with not falling out of favor with. Al, you know, lest mm -hmm. he be disinvited from the fucking wedding. Yeah, who he, he like presents as he doesn't even like this guy. Like, mm. like oh, for Al. And when he's at the wedding, he can like barely be bothered by anybody around him. It's like, mm -hmm. oh, don't play like you're fucking above any of this, you asshole. Mm. But he does. He does play into that like I'm above everything. And it's very evident that something that you mentioned in the previous episode that he just forgets that he was at the that he Forgot. was at nina's rape yeah that and he, that he was saw it. and he's like dude don't film me because he knows he knows it's bad dude don't film me but he's oh ho, 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 that is oh that is awful i mean he's standing there saying it's bad mm. he's standing there saying it's awful he's saying don't film me don't have me be on the record for this happening mm. because I know enough to know that this is fucking bad, but I'm not going to do a single thing to stop it. And then in that moment, when confronted by 
law enforcement. He even does the, he even plays into the hysterical woman notion. Do you think she would have maybe, you know, was she in a place where she would have really hurt herself maybe? Yeah, yeah, I, I think she might have done that. I think mm. she's capable of that. Like, completely painting her as the broken, crazy woman mm. who could have self-harmed. Because that would have, that would then mean it had nothing to do with him or anyone else. If she had hurt herself or done something, done something bad to herself, well, she was unstable, you know? And, mm. you know, there's just, you know, you can do all you want, you can do all you can, but there's just, there's just no helping some people. So he's <laughs> telling himself the bedtime story in real time because that's easy for him. Ultimately, it comes down to convenience. Like, so much about the people who do nothing in this movie do nothing because it would be so inconvenient to do mm. anything else. It would be so inconvenient for the dean at that school to actually go out of her way and find out what really happened on the night of Nina's rape. But, like, if we just say benefited the doubt if we just say you know innocent till proven guilty and these men have their whole lives ahead of them well if ryan just says like oh yeah she was mentally unstable and uh we broke up a while ago well because it's just so inconvenient to feel this like anxious threat of actually being somebody who cares and a protector and an ally and ow the whole complete inconvenient basically what cassie is reduced to in the end is an inconvenience mm -hmm. where like fake schmidt helps <laughs> al burn a body in a clearing to avoid the little nasty the nasty you know hassle of her ruining a wedding day mm. why why should his whole life have to be thrown thrown in the fire with her when we could just dispose of this inconvenience right now mm -hmm. and it comes down to something like a death a sexual assault being able to be chalked up to somebody's inconvenience so much so that they can they have the luxury of forgetting mm -hmm. they even witness something that bad happen later in their lives I mean, I think you really, you really pointed out the whole, one of the many theses of this film, I think, and the thing that makes me so <laughs> angry every time I think about it mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is that it, it nails it through its male characters much more than through mm -hmm. Cassie, actually. It's that the luxury of being able to forget. Yeah. And the luxury, well, not the luxury, it's the knowingness, mm -hmm. it's the knowing that the promise of their lives and what they could be is worth so much more mm -hmm. than any woman's life. Yeah, it's the it's the privilege of being able to forget, set alongside the violence of what forgetting implies. Mm. And that is devastating. And do I think this is like this movie is like the totality, like the pinnacle of what rape revenge cinema can be? No. But it is such a welcome addition mm. to the fascinating provocative challenging at times stylish and poignant tradition of these kinds of films and i'm very 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 glad that we now have this as an entry into that pantheon of films to add so much more different dimension to this conversation and i hope so much that with this being added as an entry something that raises to the level of like academy award nominations that, you know, when Get Out won its best original screenplay Oscar and it became The Darling, you know, it was a studio's, we want, we want the next Get Out. We want our Get Out. It's like, well, I, you know, I hate the trend chasing of Hollywood, but at the same time, if more places can find it profitable and desirable to want their quote unquote promising young woman, and they are willing to actually let down the gates and allow a more broadly diverse segment of filmmakers to tell those kinds of stories, and we can get a richer ecosystem 
Hmm. of those kinds of movies, then that is a best case scenario. And we can have so many more different dimensions added to this conversation that has now been able to carry through the film community and the movie talking about community for like a year and three months. Nothing gets talked about that long in movies. And we're still talking about it a year and three months later. And on that note, thank you so much for your time. And we have got two more episodes where we will be continuing to talk about this movie that yeah, seems we do. to have endless threads to pull at. <laughs> but before we wrap up, Jordan, where can people find more of your work online? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Jorcru, J-O-R-C-R-U. Imminently coming. I feel like I've said that a few times mm. um, in the past couple, like in the past month. I don't know, but it really is. Um, we have episodes banked, imminently coming, the, mm. the Neon Demon single topic podcast is on the way uh with roxanne hadati william o tyler as always there is disaster girls and we are about to we are revving up for a season two of ots Tyrion. so you can't hear me talking in as many places as you can hear anna but you can sure hear me in a lot of them oh i think you're winning also i think at least in my book <laughs> you are the pioneer of the the mini pod aka the single topic podcast <laughs> i i'm i'm really good at writing i'm better at talking i know that this is really where i shine the brightest i won that on your business cards <laughs> jordan thank you so much and next week we will be continuing our in-depth deep 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 dives into yes. promising young women and if you want to find out more about what we do outside of uh, talking about promising a woman I am at Anna B. Demented on Twitter I try to not forget to post everything that I'm doing over on there <laughs> and my huge this usual podcast is usually covered in between seasons right now so we do have a couple of bonus episodes still talking about vampires but we have got three banked seasons of the Final Girls podcast. The first one was looking wow, at witches. Wow, three! Shit! Yeah, the, the first one was looking at witches and horror films and pop culture. The second one was looking at female monsters. And the one we just wrapped with still a few more to come that are bonuses uh, was all about vampires. Gay Blade, yeah! Yes. <laughs> that is an excellent one. Yes. I can't believe you turned me around to loving Blade Trinity. <laughs> I am a powerful emotional salesman. You really are. <laughs> <laughs>